AutoCode, the Australian Computer Museum Society podcast. Season 2, Episode 7. I'm Riley Tipton Perry. Today's interview is with David Webster. David has led an amazing life. He was an engineer for General Motors Holden. He had his own companies, including Webster Computer Corporation and Webster Electronics. He's also worked as a software engineer for big companies like Yahoo and eBay. So we have a good conversation. Last year, Steve Smith entered the Retro Challenge 2021-10 and nominated the ACMS as his affiliation. The judging took a long time, as there were 44 entries, which is a new record. Retro Challenge also did a special thanks to the ACMS for their promotion and participation. Anyway, so Steve won. His Commodore 64 controlling an RC car project won the grand prize. So congratulations, Steve. And thanks to Retro Challenge. Before we start, I'm going to give clues to a mystery thing. It's an object or concept mentioned in the interview. Have a guess and I'll reveal the answer at the end of the show. A mystery thing is a computer language written by Dennis Ritchie. Language's name consists of a single letter and is successor to a language called B, which in turn is based on a language called BCPL, or Basic Combined Programming Language. Good luck. Okay, now on to the interview. So, um, um, it's good morning and good evening, David Webster. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it's it's nearly my bedtime, actually, so this is cutting right into my um, sleepy period, but we'll see how we last. Yeah, well, you've got an amazing career, so um, what, I think it's going to take a while to get through all the good stuff. Uh, so you, you may you may um, may have to sleep in. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, fair enough. That's fine. And by the way, also I have to apologise for the fact that having been here in the United States for for thirty years, I'm I'm losing my Australian accent, and I'm trying to get it back again. You know, as we talk on this thing, so that you'll understand me, and and perhaps most of the listeners are going to be Australians too. So <laughs> we'll see how we go there. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's mainly Australian, 80, 80, 75%. Is it really? Oh, cool. All right. That's good. That's good. All right. I've got, I've got a New York wife, you know, and she's been teaching me things like what's it to you and coffee and stuff like that, and it's pretty tricky. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Let, let's get back on the subject. Right. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with your early career. You studied um, electrical engineering electronics at the University of Melbourne and graduated with honours. Was technology an early passion? What was your early life like? Oh, wow. Well, um, let's see. My early life was, yeah, I had two passions. One of them was starting with crystal sets and working through to making my own little valve radio and things like that. And also music. I was just crazy wrapped in 
in um, piano and later trumpet and things like that. So those two things were my big passions. And when it, when I got to be about kind of, um, let's see, about, well, yeah, just at university age, my father took me aside and he said, he said, David, he said, music is a wonderful hobby but a terrible career, he said. <laughs> so I, I recommend that you just head off to university. So I did. <laughs> so that's why I went for the electronics. It was my dad that did that to me. Perhaps we could explore that a little further. Have you kept up with it? Well, yes, it's still there and I've got a piano in my living room and I play it almost daily and I've got some friends that play things like flutes and guitars and things like that so that we, we form little groups. <laughs> e even through uni and, and uh, through my early days, you know, I was still, you know, the, I was the um, musical director of the Melbourne University Engineering Students Club. And <laughs> let's see, uh, I was first trumpet in the city of South Melbourne Philharmonic Society and Played in a lot of theatre orchestras and things like that, you know, amateur musical theatre orchestras, nothing serious, you know. But but it was, you, you know, it kept with me, and it's still with me, really. It's sort of it's a it's a it's a good contrast to heavy technology stuff. And it, I, I, some people try to tell me that there's some relationship. I don't know, whatever, you know, it's there, <laughs> whether I like it or not. Yeah, I, I've been told the same thing. I mean, I'm. Uh musician in inverted commas as well oh really oh interesting uh -huh. well i i had a i had a um let's see i had a dixieland jazz band called the Thunderbums, and that was a lot of my uh old schoolmates got together and i, I was the trumpeter in the Thunderbums. so how about that <laughs> whatever yeah that that is that is fantastic so you joined General Motors Holden as a cadet engineer. What were the highlights of your career in the 60s? Pretty soon after I joined them, they they sent me off to Switzerland. They, they, were, they bought this numeric control machine tool from a Swiss company, and nobody knew anything about it, but they sent me off to Switzerland to study it, and... And it was all full of logic gates and, you know, integrated circuits and stuff and, and uh, you know, super ultra-precise milling tools on it and everything. And I was there for a couple of months studying it with other students from all over the world. <laughs> so, I mean, that was quite a thing. And, and there, there were, the, the, the talks were mostly in French, so I got the, a good chance to get my French um, – um, you know, tuned up a lot there too, and that, that was good. But Swiss French, which is different anyway, but still, you know, it's fun. <laughs> After that, they sent me off to a Renault factory in Paris for a week where they were installing one of these machines. And so I actually helped install it in the Renault factory before I finally went back to General Motors in Melbourne. So that was a real nice experience. I appreciated that a lot. Let's see. Uh, well, okay, then they promoted me I um I then I got a team of, of, of engineers working for me we were doing all kinds of things that mostly was involved in in testing prototype motor vehicles and uh, you know they had this proving ground at Lang Lang in Victoria General Motors Lang Lang proving ground and and uh, I spent a lot of time over there de well developing equipment for them there you know and that was uh, 
for vehicle crash testing and, you know, instrumenting anthropomorphic dummies to so you could measure how heavy the crash was on their forehead when the vehicle crashed. <laughs> okay. And, and really high-speed motion picture cameras recording the whole event. And it was a whole lot of fun. I, I enjoyed that. I mean, I, I really uh, enjoyed my time at General Motors. And, oh, yeah, and la- later on there was this, prototype motor vehicle that they did which is super futuristic thing called the Holden Hurricane and uh, I developed lots of electrical and electronic devices for that including believe it or not uh, a kind of a direction finder which I mean was predicting the GPS system by what are we saying now here about 40 years or something (laughs) but it was all um uh in, in the proving ground, we we told the vehicle where it was all the time by a series of magnets placed in the in the ground, you know, north, 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 south, south, north, and things like that, in every intersection. So the car kind of knew where it was by by sensing the signal that it picked up from my loop antenna and the magnets underneath it. And and then I did a a, a really nice little device with lots of integrated circuits in it and stuff that would 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 tell the driver, okay, one more turn, you know, one more intersection, then turn left. You know, you put a program in saying where you wanted to go, and it would tell you all the way through the proving ground where. Because there was lots of roads and junctions and all sorts of things all over it, so it was good. We had something like about sixty-eight locations. I mean, <laughs> is isn't like the GPS system telling you where you are within one meter all over the world, but you know, it was sort of it was fun. But um, towards the end there, um, you know, I sort of got famous in the company and I got moved around from all kinds of divisions to do all kinds of, you know, specific things. But one of the guys there was also a amateur thing, uh, the Victorian Amateur Swimming Association. He was a committee member there. And he and he blew in my ear saying that they really needed a, a lap timing and a, 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 a timing and judging device for the Olympic pool. You know, the new Olympic pool, it had just been built. Yeah, it's still there, I think. Sure, sure. It was there last time I was in Melbourne anyway. But it was brand new then, and uh, and the, and they needed some kind of, uh, you know, timing and judging device for the swimmers with all eight lanes of the of the pool. And it was the first, they didn't, there wasn't anything in Australia anywhere that would do that. So I kind of fiddled around and tried all kinds of things and tried to invent touch pads and things that, didn't kind of get drowned in the water and all that, and uh, eventually came up with a with a system and gave them a price, and they said, yes, right? <laughs> and so I was kind of stuck then. What am I going to do? So I just quit General Motors and went and started my own company. So that's what I did there. I don't know whether I regret it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think judging from the, the next 20 years, uh, it, was, it was not a – decision to be regretted i had a lot of fun definitely (laughs) how did the swim timing the pool timing system actually work well touch pads were uh pneumatic is what i ended up with i I sort of uh, got little quarter inch uh, rubber hoses and distributed them all over a metal panel and glued them into place with some really good glue (laughs) and then put over all of that a panel that was full of holes a plastic panel that was filled with holes and then all of the little tubes would come together in a junction and then lead a pneumatic tube out of the water into a little box where i had a 
pressure switch, you know, where it would sense a pulse of, of air and then uh, click the little switch. So it was uh, immune to waves and things because the rubber tubes were, uh, when a wave came in through all the plastic holes, it would be pressing on all sides of the tube so it didn't compress the tube and so that there was no pulse of air went out of it. But when a swimmer touched the pad, that would squeeze the tube and that would send a puff of air out into the little switch. And that kind of worked. And that was all my idea. But it wasn't very electronic, but it, it, it kind of, you know, the pads were about eight feet across and about six feet tall, you know, so it was quite an area that we had to sense the touch. But it could do everything from a light, light touch to, a, to a withstanding the impact of a 200-pound swimmer doing a tumble turn on it and going back the other way so so it kind of worked pretty good it was amazing oh and then the rest of it was all electronics using all kinds of integrated circuits and stuff and then it drove a printer and the printer then had um as each swimmer touched the thing it would would give his lap count number and his time and or her there was girl swimmers too <laughs> That was just kind of it, really. And and so that, you know, from the printout, then all the judges would um, know who won. And, and it was all really accurate to about a hundredth of a second. So I was pretty proud of that, too. Way better than any guy with a stopwatch could ever do, you know. And how long was that system used for? Well, uh, I know about it being there for years, but I don't know how many years. And I don't remember them replacing it, but I'm sure it's not there anymore. I mean, there's been competing systems invented in the world that I'm sure are better than mine, although I don't know why they needed to be. <laughs> and also, we sold another one of those in, to uh, the Valley Pool in Brisbane a, a few years later. So it, it was still in use. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't really know what the end of, end of all of those things were. I, had, I was distracted into all kinds of other things after that. Let's talk now about the 1970s to the mid-1990s. Uh, and you've got a pretty good uh, document that you've provided that gives us a chronological uh, order of things that have happened to you. So, yeah, uh, tell us your story, please, David. All right. Well, here it goes. <laughs> well, so uh, after, after installing this um, swim tech, we called it, you know, swim timing device for the Olympic pool, we got contacted. We got a lot of press and a lot of uh, exciting sort of stories in all the newspapers. And uh, a local computer startup named Management Information Systems contacted me because they wanted a uh, – they had just bought themselves a brand-new DEC PDP-11 computer, which had just been released on the market then. And they, they wanted an interface to their CalComp CD 12 20 megabyte disk drive. And there was no such thing available anywhere in the world. So they funded me into designing it and I delivered it and it worked and everything's good. And so then they followed me up with a few more projects along the similar lines. So then I, I started to be a little bit overwhelmed with doing this all myself. And uh, my brother, my brother, Jim Webster, he, he, uh, he joined me. And then we uh, opened a little office in Camberwell. The other thing is that uh, soon after that, um, uh, another guy joined me, Rick Haler, who was um, 
one of my uni buddies, right? And he'd spent eight years at Australia Telecom. So I, I sort of got those guys in by giving, you know, both Jim and Rick, my brother and Rick, uh, by, by giving them shares and directorships and stuff like that so that I didn't have to pay them much money. <laughs> uh, and my wife, Faye, left her job as, as a women's editor in the Sun News Pictorial. And she then started writing crazy huge numbers of press releases about everything that we achieved and all of our wonderful um, products. And, and it got published in the, you know, the Age and the Argus and the, and the Sun and, and um, uh, magazines and all sorts of stuff, you know. So we really got um, a lot of publicity out of all of that. And we had our own publicity director. And that really helped a lot. So let's see, in, in 1973, we developed our own first product of our own. You know, I mean, everything else was a, was a kind of a, a once-only contract that people got us involved in. But we developed a thing called, which we called the Computex 1260 rack-mounted floppy disk subsystem. And, and it consisted of uh, Memrex 8-inch floppy disk drives and our own PDP-11 QBus interface. So that could plug into any of the new deck computers, which were starting to get pretty popular at the time. And a couple more people joined us, you know, people that I'd known in, in General Motors, well, people that actually worked for me in General Motors. They, they came and joined me too. And so we, we ran out of space again, and we had to get a small factory. So we did. We, opened, we, we, we bought a small factory in Scoresby. You know, by the way, you know, that uh, I, what I haven't been talking about is that you know we've made a bit of money over the things that we've done so far, so we can now afford a, to buy a factory and also to pay people proper salaries. So money is good. Yeah, we yeah that's right. We extended the the um, Computex twelve sixty interface choices to include Data General Nova and Interdata mini computers. Which we didn't know, but you know they looked like they were going to be as good as DEC PDP-11s and as popular. But they, they sort of, you know, failed off, and, the, and those those other interfaces didn't really get anywhere. So we stayed with the DEC PDP-11 marketplace from there on in. In 1975, the Valley Pool in Brisbane bought another one of our uh, swim tech systems. So so we repeated all of the same stuff with all of the the touch panels and the printouts, you know, for, for the Valley Pool in Brisbane, that much a, more or less a duplicate of what we did in Melbourne. And some more money for that, you know. Oh, yeah. But in 1976, it was really big now because at that point, digital had come out with this little processor called the LSI-11, which is really a PDP-11 central processor with nothing else but just the central processor and a, and a on a, on a circuit board. And what we did was we developed a complete computer system around that, which integrated floppy disks and memory and serial line controllers and, and so on with a, a deck LSI board. And, and uh, to interface everything together, we invented this thing called a general purpose multiple interface. And that uh, had everything on it, you know, and it, all of the interface. So all you really needed was the DEC LSI 11 and this GPMI board. And the GPMI board have had memory, disk IO, serial IO, 
bootstrap and and a straight Cubase interface to the LSI 11 board. But within the GPMI, it had its own arithmetic logic unit and slave process, yeah, slave processor, which managed all the data transfers between memory and disk and external I/O, and it, and it was really super efficient. And so the the whole thing, you know, it saved. Uh, load on the Qbus, you know, which was the, the interface to the DEX CPU and freed the DEX CPU for doing nothing more than fetching and executing instructions. We were doing all kinds of things like caching memory, uh, yeah, arbitrating contentions for the device and memory access and all that. And it was really kind of a very effective little thing. Oh, yeah. What, what we thought about all of this was it was about three times the, the uh, program and disk throughput of compatible DEX systems. So kind of like made deck look a bit silly, this thing, <laughs> which was amazing. At, at that stage, you know, we thought, okay, now we're, we're pretty good now. What we, we don't need to do any more of these, um, little, um, one-off jobs anymore. And, uh, what we really ought to do is, is, is focus on, on our products. Which was maybe a good decision and maybe not. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but anyway, it sort of, it, it led us down a path of being a, a product manufacturer rather than a once only uh, project company. And then, um, in 1977, Monash University heard about us and they were working on this thing called Monax, which was an educational computing system for uh, based on PDP-11s, or mostly on PDP-11s, it was available on other sites. But they approached us, suggested that we um, do a combined thing with them. That was a terrific advantage, or opportunity for us. We ultimately became the primary base for for that system, and they sold, you know, ultimately hundreds of them. So that this was a really, really good market for our Spectrum 11 computer, as we called it. You know, 1978. Now we 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 kept on updating our computer product. We um, sold them a lot, did a lot of them to technical colleges and Melbourne Unions and Leonard's College and Frankston State College and and one even to Pentridge Prison for training of prisoners. And that was really quite exciting. It, it was costly at first that that we were not doing the once only products, which would pay up immediately and. But now we were proven correct, you know, that, that, you know, selling this computer that we just had to repeat manufacture over and over again for typically less than important imported computers that were equivalent to it. And it had high performance, you know, with this GPMI thing. You know, we could provide good after sales service because we sure knew the product because we had invented it, you know. So we, we certainly knew exactly what to do whenever there was a service problem. We could run pretty much any deck compatible software so that, uh, you know, the deck ecosystem, as we called it, was buying our stuff, you know, randomly from all over the place and running whatever software that they had already been used or developed on deck machines. So we kept on growing and in 1979, we, we, um, we sold our Scoresby office and, and, and bought ourselves, uh, manufacturing plant in Bayswater, which was three times as big and, uh, you know, started hiring more production staff and we started building more and more of our products. Well, still, it was just computers at this point. The Monex system was really 
you know, one of the one of our major um, markets, the Victorian government wanted to do a culture cultural exchange with the um, Academy of Sciences in Beijing in China. They appointed, uh, you know, Len Whitehouse at Monash University and I to go to China uh, to China with one of these Monex systems and then install and instruct it to Chinese people. Uh, was all financed by Rupert Hamer, which I thought was really a good deal. So we had this this wonderful, you know, trip and everything paid for, including all of the products, and we really got to explore Beijing. That was fun. They, I really enjoyed that. They, they they looked after us well, and they showed us all the sites, you know, like the Great Wall of China and the Ming tombs and all kinds of interesting things. At this, uh, you know, in the afternoons, in the mornings, we ran the little the little courses for them. They picked it up really well. You know, that was pretty good. And that year, we got um, Enterprise Australia got a special. Uh, gave us a, an award for special condemnation for excellence in the, in the enterprise area. So we we now had about ten people, and we were still moving on here. So it became 1980. The Academy of Sciences in Beijing uh, sold us, uh, bought um, a, a, another system from us directly. They paid us this time, not Hammer. We actually got a customer in America. Uh, Dynatron Inc. was the company in Connecticut. Just as a as a crazy maneuver, there we established a branch office in New York, and 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 relocated one of our engineers to New York to manage that you know, customer support and sales that happened there. Ah, that was a big big move for us. We also uh, designed bigger and better computer systems. Now we had a freestanding version with uh, big 10 or 20 megabyte Winchester disks in it and GPMI interfaces. And we, we started selling that to uh, various companies in Australia. In that year, um, DECUS, which was the DEC user, the, the Digital Equipment Corporation Users Group, uh, had a conference in Sydney they they appointed me to be their keynote speaker. This is Deck, you know, who I, we're really kind of competing with. And, yeah, and I presented a thing which was titled How an Australian Computer Systems Manufacturer Can Survive in the Face of International Competition. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, we, we weren't really stepping on Deck's toes, but it was getting close. <laughs> there was uh, a competitor... Uh, digital Electronics, which was an Australian firm as well. Were they much competition? Um, I mean, what was the relationship there? There were various companies, and I'm trying to remember Digital Electronics. They built deck clones. Oh, they built deck clones. Yeah, that's right. I do remember them now. I don't think their computers were as good as ours. They certainly didn't. We, we didn't ever trip over them in the marketplace. It was very rare that we were actually competing with them, but they, they had, I guess, their own computer base. We were really wonderfully propelled forward by the Monex system, and that helped us a lot uh, to, to, to build volume and to develop better products and so on. And I, I don't think they lasted very long, that company, Digital Electronics. Yeah, yeah. We've got some stuff from them. Oh, cool. I'd like to read that because I'm, I'm getting vague on them. They, 
but we didn't trip over them really that was that's the real point is that the marketplace was much bigger than the both of us combined you know what i mean yeah uh, what, what i mean is we have some gear oh right okay interesting so i know one of the engineers so i could find out more oh yeah that would be interesting anyway where were we 1980 is it 1980 that we're up to? Uh, yeah, around 1980, yeah. And, and by that stage, in 1980, we'd sold 200 of our Spectrum 11 computers. Actually, Monex was only only in the 30s of those, so that we, we were now selling way more computers to other people. I remember the State Electricity Commission bought 16 of them. You know, we're, they were getting used all over the place. In fact, there was... Um, the customers, uh, our enthusiastic customers, banded together and formed an organization called Spectrum Users Group, and and they themselves, quite independently, met monthly to discuss to uh, talk about their computing experiences and ideas and applications and 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 get mutual benefit. Do you have newsletters and such? I wish I did. I really do wish I did. I don't know whether they published things or not because that's something we like to archive in any any user group information we can so if you can find someone if it was yeah i don't know where they are now because of course there's no more spectrums for them to use so uh so they obviously you, you know they had nothing else to talk about 30 years ago when i'm uh, from now, you know, 1990s. But anyway, um, well, it would be interesting to see if there's any records of them anywhere. Let's see, what, what else happened in 1980? Um, uh, up until this stage, basically, I, I had done all of the electronic design and software development personally, and the other people had been more involved in sales and marketing and service and things like that and manufacturing. At that point, I hired a couple of, of really smart electronic engineers, Neil Bayliss and Gary Rimmer, they were, and who both of them stayed with me for quite a long time after that. And, uh, and they really um, developed over the years some much better hardware even than I did. And also uh, a, a, a really good software engineer by the name of Peter Medici. So that saved me from all of the software development and stuff like that. And uh, but at this stage now we now had a f had fifteen people at the end of nineteen eighty. Let's say in nineteen eighty one, we were starting to sell stuff in Queensland. So we we established a Brisbane office and appointed this guy Dennis Daisy to run it. Uh, oh yeah, back to Beijing, the the um, Chinese at the Institute of Technology in China ordered three more systems from us. So we, we, we kept on selling computers to them. Although, as far as I'm aware, that was the last we heard from them. I don't know. Maybe they started buying something else after that. But until 1981, we were still selling stuff to them anyway. There's a, a, a kind of obvious question about Chinese characters and such, but uh, how did you deal with that? Well, um, you, you know... All throughout the world, the computer science people learned English. <laughs> they they were doing everything in English, you know, and and uh, that that was. I mean, even in Russia today, they're using English for for their um, software development. It's just 
doesn't exist in any in any other place. In Beijing, um, when we were talking to the people, of course, none of them understood English. And so we had an interpreter in the room, you know, both Lynn Whitehouse and me. Uh, we, we would talk for five minutes or something like that. And then the interpreter would take over and he would talk for five minutes. And we knew he was saying exactly what we were saying because they'd come up with words like Fortran and COBOL in English <laughs> at exactly the right time within those five minutes. <laughs> I don't know what exactly what else they were saying, but they certainly, the, the, the words that we understood came out at the right time. So when, when it came down to programming, you know, when they were using the Monex system, they had to do that in English. So somehow or other, they um, developed pretty quickly into, into using English. You know, attended lots of computer conferences and did lots of marketing and so on in America. I uh, hired um, a new guy to run the new New York office and moved it into White Plains in New York. <laughs> Let's see. And we also established another American office in, in California. Pretty soon after that, I guess the following year, we wound up the New York office and moved all of our operations to California where there was a lot more business for us, a lot more interest in what we were doing. And by the end of 1981, we'd sold 300 Spectrum computers. And we now had 21 employees. And we hit sales of a million bucks. That's amazing. Did, do you know of any existing Spectrums? There's one in the Monash University has one in their museum. <laughs> Monash, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure that really the vast majority of them have all been scrapped by now a long time ago and turned back into bits of metal <laughs> and gold and things like that. It's, I, 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 would, I would actually love to have one myself again now that I've, I mean, it's sort of nostalgic, all this stuff. But, but, you know, compared with, like, for example, my little MacBook, Air here that I've got here, my M1 MacBook Air, the Spectrum was a very poor shadow of every modern computer, really. It's, they're, they're not useful for anything except maybe nostalgia. That's about all. <laughs> so I'm definitely keeping an eye out and an ear open for funny any. Yeah, in, uh, in 1982, I actually incorporated a new company called Webster Electronics, Inc. in, in America. So and and that started trading in its own name there, which um, made the American customers a little feel a little bit more familiar and happy with it. We uh, developed even bigger and better spectrums. We um, established lots of partnerships with with Australian companies who, who, who you know, there were software companies, and we helped to find customers for them so that they could resell their software with our computers. That, that just gave us more and more business. Oh, yes, there was a, a distributor in, um, in, in Singapore called Far East Computers that just found us out of, I don't know how they found us. But then they started selling our computers, and we shipped a lot of stuff into, into Singapore, which then they resold into, into the rest of Asia all over the place. We don't really know where they all went there. Finding all these partners and distributors was, was our big focus in 1982, and it, and it helped, um, helped us grow a lot. I think they sold oh, – yeah, here we got it. I, I got a note of it. They, they had sold 30 
by the end of 1983. Don't know what happened, where, where they went after that. But, you, know, you know, it was a significant number. And anyway, by the end of uh, 1982, we had sales totaling $2 million. So that was still growing nicely. But actually too fast for our own good. I can tell you later what we did wrong with all of this, but it was feeling good at the time, you know. <laughs> we we just found more and more um, companies to do business with, like Saturn Systems with their word processing and spreadsheet word processing and spreadsheet software, and that helped attract a lot more customers. We uh, we found a, a company that was a plastic molding company called Moldflow. They started selling a lot of our computers in USA, even though they were an Australian company. But that's where all the plastic molding companies are, apparently. <laughs> and uh, so, so that was pretty cool. There's just all kinds of little bits and pieces here that I could talk about, but I should skip over because it's getting to be a bit of a long story here. Oh, yeah, we, um, we designed a board-level product, which was a, just a serial line multiplexer, which could, could support eight serial lines, or, you know, basically terminals, uh, right into our computer or into any deck computer because it was it was um, just a plug-in card for the for the deck backplane. By 1983, we'd already sold a million dollars worth already of them. You know, that, that was a huge build-up for our um, U.S. business, and U.S. business was starting to equal our Australian business at this point. We, we we opened an office in Sydney. You know, it's funny. We had a Brisbane office already, but we, we opened a Sydney office in in um, 1983. Hired more and more people. Changed our company name from D.D. Webster Electronics Proprietary Limit, which was a little bit personal, my, my, me being D.D. Webster and having a staff of 35 people. So we changed it to Webster Computer Corporation. Um, Felt a bit more like a company name to me. <laughs> we we had sales, you know, nearly three million that year. Ah, and anyway, nineteen eighty four, we developed more board level products, and this is what we were starting to do now: is build board level products to plug into our computers and also to other deck computers all over the place. So this time we we developed a a, a disc controller for Winchester drives and. It had, uh, you know, some pretty good features, but it was the beginning of our developing of products in that in that in that general direction, and uh, we did an even better one in 1985, which I'll come to in a minute. Let's see. I'm just. Oh yeah, here we are. Um, Far East Computers in in 1984 had now sold 60 of our computers. So that that's still building. It's going better and better. I got all kinds of awards. Like I was called a, I got an award as the Personality of the Year at the uh, Australian Information Technology Conference in Sydney. <laughs> what well, what does that entail? How does one become Personality of the Year? Yeah, well, probably with us, it was all of this press that we that my wife was still, you know, plastering all over the place, you know, and 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 my name really did get kind of overdone, I think, <laughs> but 
that wasn't a bad thing because it just helped getting awards. And when you get awards, then you start to get more sales. And I, oh, also in 1984, I got the the Department of Trade awarded uh, an award for outstanding export achievement of an Australian company, and also um, the Department of Industry and Commerce awarded me a Small Business Award for Outstanding Achievement. So these awards, you know, they sound kind of self-congratulatory, but, but they really attracted the attention of, of, of more and more business and gave us more excuses for press releases, you know, <laughs> and getting, getting our name in the newspapers. But here we are in, in 1984, selling our computers in America involved really heavy export problems. You know, we, we had to, um, you know, ship them, full computers. But the board-level products were actually selling better there, you know, because, you know, there's this huge deck ecosystem of, of deck OEMs that were buying deck computers but wanted some of the functionality that we, the added functionality that we could offer on our board-level products. And so we, we stopped marketing our computers in America in 84 and, and just started featuring nothing but our board-level products at this point. Okay. Was that a good decision, do you think? Yes, I think so. Um, the, um, the board level products were not as profitable, but we were selling way more of them. They were cheaper to export. And ultimately, later on, we started even manufacturing them in America. So it, um, it became more of a, an easier thing to do, you know. By the way, just for the listeners out there, even though it was uh, designed and manufactured in America, we still consider it Australian. <laughs> what well, was manufactured in Austra- in US, but so far our design was still in, in Australia. In fact, it always was. The design never, ever went to America. So in 1985, now we were 15 years old, we developed a, a radical new um, uh, interface for uh, ESDI-compatible disk drives. The, you know, there's a lot of... They, they were starting to use standard interfaces with disk drives now, and ESDI was was uh, was becoming the real go-to interface, and we, we developed a board for that that um, had some really interesting features. This this was, you know, our, our, our new engineers, Gary Rimmer and Peter Mideke and, and uh, this guy Frank Campbell, they together developed this idea of putting a one megabyte cache memory in the disk controller, and that allowed for things like, I mean, if, if, if a disk transfer request was, you know, they were all typically only one sector, uh, which was, you know, just uh, a few kilobytes. And, it, and th- this cache memory allowed for support of queuing of commands and overlapped seeks and look-ahead reads and and lightning fast throughput and yeah um so the 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 thing about it was that instead of just you know issuing a read request to the disk and then waiting for it to come back with the data we signaled to the program that okay the read was underway but yeah give us another one and we could we could accept multiple read requests and then we would look at those requests and say well which one can we return the quickest by where the heads are on the disk drive and and where we are in the ro- rotationally, you know where the various sectors are. So we could we could 
the logical cueing of the command, uh, you know, speed up the response of it uh, like lightning for when, when multiple commands are issued. There was nothing else like that anywhere. And that was this, this, these, these guys <laughs> that I was smart enough to hire. They, they invented all of that. And, and uh, we put it in this board and started marketing it. And it was extremely successful. It was called, we called it the WQESD. And W for Webster, Q for QBus, and ESD for the ESDI disk drive interface. And that was probably our most successful product ever, ultimately. Really went well. And, of course, in USA, they were really lapping them up. So that was cool. And we kept coming up with, with more interfaces here and there, but um, none of them is as successful as that WQESD board, which really worked well. See, I think that this is the point. When you've got a lot of products, you don't really know which ones are going to succeed until you get them out there and your customers decide for you, you know. <laughs> so... It's worthwhile yeah, having yeah. a few little efforts like that. Exhibited them all over the place in all kinds of conferences all over Australia and USA and got more and more people interested in us and kept on growing. And by the end of 1985, our sales were now um, $5 million and we had a profit of $670,000 in that year, which was our best year, I think. Well, at, up till then, anyway. <laughs> 1986, we kept on developing more products. We did a 16-line um, a communications multiplexer. In other words, you could support 16 terminals off this one little circuit board plugged into the Q-Bus or, you know, serial lines in general, which could go to printers or modems or whatever else you wanted to do at the time. We kept on moving our offices around and growing them and exhibiting all over the place and we've got a staff of 57 at that point and oh boy people were coming and going but mostly coming <laughs> in 1987 we developed another product another mini computer called the piranha and i'm sorry we did that and we put the effort into it but we didn't really sell very many of them and we did a few more circuit board things which didn't really go anywhere but didn't matter because we still had our previous successes still booming and doing well. So a few mistakes here and there, but not a big, big problem. We, we got sales. Oh, yes, that, that year we got sales of $7 million, which was pretty cool. And then we actually had a slight loss that year for mostly because we hired too many people, I think, that year. And, you know, that costs money. You've got to pay salaries. In 1988... We'd already made one non-DEC product. We developed another computer in 1987, Unix-based, right? We thought that, okay, the DEC marketplace was, was what it was, but the Unix was starting to become a really interesting operating system for everybody around the world. And uh, we thought it was going to outpace any individual computer manufacturer's internal operating system and so uh, we, we we went for unix because it looked like it was going to be the the thing that would overtake all the industry and it kind of did in various ways but ah this computer that we invented <laughs> at this point called the webster venus took a lot of work 
would support lots of users and was had a huge um, hard drive in it and all kinds of good stuff. Used standard uh, Unix System 5. However, ultimately, we only ever sold three of them. And that was the, one of the biggest disasters ever. Ah, however, getting back to 1988 again, we uh, produced another uh, non-DEC product, and this thing was for Apple. Now, uh, at that point, Apple computers only had one interface, and it was called Apple Talk. And it could connect apples together, and that, that, that's all it did. Apple also had a, a, a separate little module that you could buy outside that would connect Apple Talk to Ethernet, but only one computer would connect to Ethernet using this device. But with Apple Talk, Apple could connect without any external devices up to 16 com Apple computers all together, and they would all chat and get away with each other, and you could build a network from Apple's integral Apple Talk network. But that had a problem in that it was a very, very chatty network, a very chatty protocol, and, uh, and performance deteriorated rapidly after about eight computers were interconnected. So that, that was a bit of a problem. Apple's Apple Talk, you know, you could either connect your computers together and have them all sync down to just no performance at all after eight, or else you could buy eight of these little Apple Talk to Ethernet connectors and then connect your individual apples to Ethernet. Well, we invented a thing which allowed you to connect four Apple Talk networks to the Ethernet. And that meant that multiple apples could connect to each one of our ports with their full Apple Talk network. And we also had the Ethernet connection so that all of those four different Apple Talk networks with, say, let's say 10 computers on each of them, 40 computers would all connect to the Ethernet and to each other uh, with only one of our boxes. And that, that was a, a huge saving on expense and uh, also a, a huge increase in performance over using the Apple Apple's own little one-channel connection to the Ethernet. Actually, it was invented in Melbourne Uni. You know, they designed the circuit boards and software and all. And all we had to do was box it and brand it and sell it, basically, at that point. So so that was um, a, a very nice, easy introduction to us to, to, to that uh, new marketplace. It immediately was very successful. So uh, we were kind of very lucky with that one. We, we moved our, our, our head office to a, a really nice new factory in, in uh, Bayswater, the Caribbean Gardens, if you know where that is, sort of an industrial development sector. And, and that was a really nice, big, shiny new factory, and that was kind of cool. We also expanded our um, American office and um, relocated you know, more of our staff over there to, to look after it. We sold, um, our, our sales were $7.5 million that year in, in 1988. We unfortunately, um, our expenses went up that year too, you know, including, you know, that, that really disastrous development of uh, that Unix computer, not selling any of them, hardly. We lost money that year and we actually did a bit of staff pruning and cut back a bit and things were 
sales were, we had a fair few sales, but, you know, we were kind of, our expenses were way up, you know, and it wasn't, uh, wasn't a good year for us. But then came 1989. Oh, we tried a lot of reorganizing at the beginning of the year to uh, two separate divisions, one of them selling the computer products and the other one selling computer systems, which seemed to be two really different markets to us. And we, we hoped that it would give us better focus on, on, our, on our different specialties. Also, uh, in 1989, I delivered a keynote address at Apple Developer Conference in Sydney. It was a kind of a cool thing. But in the middle of the year, by the middle of the year, financial problems were really getting serious and we weren't paying the creditors on time and, and it was looking pretty dire. We, we met together, our directors, and we voted that we would appoint a receiver to stabilize our creditors. And that was a huge decision. It was scary and uh, was quite significant. And this is what I really think happened to us at that point and why we had to go into receivership. It was a question about inventory, you know, which is a funny sort of a question. But throughout our entire history, we're always like more focused on growth than profit. And we, we, we didn't grow any reserves because it, it, it takes profit to build reserves. And so we became vulnerable to, to lean periods and without really... Look, none of us was an accountant. That's the problem, you know. I, I was trained in electrical engineering, not in, not, not in how to keep companies together. But here's what I see now about it, you know. What we failed to appreciate is that before we could begin production of any of the products, we had to have accurate estimates of the likely demand for that product. Not now, but after all the delays in component sourcing and production and completion and testing and placing it on the shelf ready for delivery. And after delivery of the product, you have to finance the inevitable wait before the customer pays us. So that's a long period that we actually need to, to, to finance inventory and stuff. In addition, you know, even before you commence the design of a new product, you need accurate estimates of the likely market size and pricing and profit to determine whether the design costs and marketing costs are even worth the investment in the first place. Like, for example, this uh, Unix computer that we built, you know, if we'd really analyzed that properly, we wouldn't have done it. We have to make these market estimates way before we actually make a decision to start designing things and start manufacturing them and whatever. And they're never correct. You, you either underestimate or overestimate the market. If you underestimate, you, you get inv expensive inventory buildup. Or if you overestimate, you get devastating delays in customer deliveries and order cancellations and all that sort of stuff. So as a result, any company, and we didn't, but any sensible company would invest it, would invest considerable capital resources to inventory, the cost of production and waiting and all that stuff. So the, the capital needs to come from somewhere, and ultimately it has to really come from profits. So our lack of focus on profit and our overpaced focus on growth was the real major contribution, I believe, you know, was really the critical mistake that we made about exhaustion of our capital resources and descending 
into receivership. Anyway, that, that's the receivership thing. That's what happened to us. So that year that we went into receivership, we, you know, it was kind of troubled and we, the sales fell down to, well, it was still pretty healthy, six point six and a half million. And we, we got a huge loss that year of 500,000. And one big reason for that was, and we didn't really have any realization of this when we appointed the receiver, the receiver billed us $1 million for his services for that year. So, yeah, so that, that's why we lost $500,000, which it would have been a $500,000 profit. But we couldn't do it. We couldn't go on without the receiver because the creditors were building up huge because we'd made huge mistakes about product lead time and so on. So we were still in receivership. And in, in 1980, you know, um, 1990, I mean, <laughs> By, by uh, 1990, you know, I, you know, my job until then had been the um, chief executive officer, but I was kind of overridden by the, the Peter Vince, who was our receivership manager. He took over my job. And so I spent much of my time then traveling all over the place, visiting and reorganizing and uh, the, uh, the, the offices, going to trade shows and doing lots of marketing and visiting our major customers and trying to sell them on how good we were and all that stuff. And I was fairly successful with that. At the end of 1990, sales dropped even further, but we had profits that returned to $300,000, even with the annual million-dollar receivership fee. (laughs) So... We must have been doing something right by then. And I guess the receiver was helping us do something right. Uh, you know, he made lots of lots of critical economic financial decisions, which we hadn't been doing ourselves beforehand. Okay, in 1991, you know, because, you know, I didn't really have much to do, I, I, I moved to California for three months and managed the office there because there was lots of stuff that needed to be done there and hired some new people over there. and. I, um, you know, exhibited the products into trade shows and stuff like that and got good sales again that year. The total corporate sales of five and a half million again. Profits fell, but it was still positive. We were still paying receivership fees of a million, remember? <laughs> then in 1992, I felt kind of like I'd already used, been used up in Australia. There wasn't much else for me to do there. So I relocated to California where I really believed that the future was and started to um, do lots of things like attending conferences and finding new things to sell. We found a product called Nest Server, which was that based disk storage thing created by a small company there and they needed marketing. And so we signed a deal with them that we would market it for them. And we, we sold quite a lot of that. That was pretty good. And that year, in 1992, we sold 400 multi-port gateways. <laughs> so that was going really, really well. And then in 1993, the creditors of Webster Computer Corporation that had initiated the receivership officially voted to finalize our four years of receivership. And so we were out of receivership in 1993. And... Yeah, that was early 1993. And what what happened to the company after that was 
the receiver had to decide exactly how it was going to be organized as as part of his um, departure from receivership and as part of their the deal with the creditors. And so it got split in half, and all of the Australian operations were sold to employees, primarily uh, one of our employees, Robert Paul, who then formed it into his own company, Webster Computer Systems. And he was quite successful with that for many more years, but that eventually uh, had a big problem, you know, in, oh, I mean, almost in, in the year 2000 or something like that. He, he was selling disk drives from Fujitsu that had a huge defect in them, and he, it resulted in devastating losses to him, and, and he, he closed and, and merged with another company. So that's all gone. But what, what happened to the USA operation was that I inherited that. So now my full reason for existence was only in America, so I stayed there. <laughs> I uh, formed a new company, Webster Computer Corporation, Inc., uh, you know, maintain a small staff. Uh, some, some of the Melbourne people came to join me there in America. We were selling the multiport. L oh, yeah, oh, we, that's right. There was a product that was being worked on at the time of we've, uh, at the time we finished receivership. There was a product that that our design crew was working on, which called the Multiport LT, which is a radical redesign of the Multiport Gateway, uh, with a lot of new features in it. I wanted that to be finished. I wanted to start selling that in America, and so I personally, as part of what I was doing from America, maintained a small design crew in Melbourne. You know the, the the designers to complete the development of that, including my brilliant design people that I had hired. You know, to to do all of these other things. Uh, and in America, well, no, uh, actually, no. In Australia, there there was, uh, you know, a lot of restructuring there. Uh, the the company, the receiver, yeah. Before he even um, put us into receivership, decided that the whole manufacturing division was a waste of time. We had this monstrous wave soldering machine which for making circuit boards, and it took a huge amount of factory space, and you know the production stuff was fairly expensive and so on. And so he actually terminated all that, and, we, and well, with us, subcontracted all of our circuit board manufacturer to Fujitsu Australia, and this ended up being much lower costs, improved lead times, <laughs> And because we didn't need all that space anymore, we moved the head office to a smaller premises in Mulgrave and saved a whole lot of annual rent expense. And that was just before the end of receivership, which left us with a you know great improvement in cash flow and so on. Uh, let's see. But anyway, still, what was happening in Australia was no longer really interesting to me. Um, in 1994... Uh, the, the team that I hired in Australia completed their project and then disbanded. Uh, we moved manufacturer multiport LT to America via subcontractors there, still getting our boards manufactured by Fujitsu in, in Australia, which was still good. You know, things started to become very totally American-oriented from my point of view. <laughs> Sales of the multiport LT really... Um, started to grow and, and get better and better. But another interesting thing happened in 1994. Digital Equipment Corporation, the whole company, was really running out of steam itself. 
you know, market was the marketplace in general was losing interest in deck, and and of course the deck uh, ecosystem itself began to shrink, and of course, so our part of the ecosystem shrunk. <laughs> you know, we still had occasional orders for our board level products, but really that was a declining part of the business that that that, that, that was no longer interesting to us. By 1995, we were no longer selling our board-level products at all. Ah, the next thing that happened to us, though, in 1995, was that Apple began equipping all of its own new computers with their own Ethernet connection. And that began to eliminate the central purpose of the multi-port LT because we, we no longer needed to interface Apple Talk to Internet. We no longer needed to make the uh, Apple networks more efficient to, by overriding their Apple Talk protocol because Ethernet itself was efficient and helped them interconnect themselves directly. So, you know, we were still selling the multi-port LT because uh, there were still, you know, large installations of older existing Macintoshes that needed to, to get their networking in order. But that was now a declining market for us too. So basically by 1996... Really, all of our business was winding down, and I, I just moved our office from San Jose to my home office in Los Gatos. Continued just a little bit of sales after that, but it all declined over the next few years and, and died. <laughs> so that was it. So then I, I then became involved in things that were not at all related with Webster Computer Corporation at all anymore. You know, I began pursuing small gig jobs and lots of consultancies and things, and things became overlapped, and I was doing lots of things at once, and this continued on into the 2000s. That's another big, long story all in itself as to what I did after that, which was not unsuccessful, but was no longer Webster Computer Corporation. So that's kind of the end of Webster Computer Corporation from my point of view. All done. Right. That is a, an amazing story. Uh, I do want to know more. Nor Capital and, and Martlet Venture Management, uh, what work did this involve? Okay. Well, well, Martlet was a venture capital company. They were financing startup companies uh, all over the world, basically. They were based at that stage in England. They, they wanted to start investigating funding offices in, in uh, uh, new startup companies in Silicon Valley. And so I was right there, and they hired me <laughs> to find startup opportunities and, and to help fund them. That, that was pretty good. I found a few, and they funded them. And in 2001, uh, Matlet was bought out by Nor Capital. So basically, that's all the same company, and I continued then working for Nor Capital. But what happened soon after that, let's see, yeah, by the end of 2001, the um, whole computer industry was suffering what was then called the dot bomb. Most of uh, Nor Capital's uh, investments um, in startups were involved in this new thing called the Internet, and the internet, uh, internet companies began to uh, really, really um, 
crashed. There was too many of them, and they were poorly um, acquainted with what they were doing. It was all over the world, this, this thing that they called the dot bomb. It was the, the crash of all of the dot-com companies, and Nor Capital went broke. So that was the end of my job with those guys. Oh, okay. Right. Well, after that, Lionheart Technology sounds interesting. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Well, that was kind of cool. They were um, involved with mainly military applications and certainly all government applications. And what they were doing was uh, forming avatars of, of live people and, and simulating an immersion virtual reality for military markets. What they were trying to do was try and find a way for distributed generals and you know fighting teams to actually be in a constant communication in a, in a way that felt like they were talking to each other. These avatars, I, I actually um, in, invented this, these active visual targets, which would, uh, they would wear on their shirts, and their arm movements would then be detected by oh, or camera technology and, and turned to, um, to software modeling of avatars. And the, those avatars could then be then transmitted over the internet to wherever they were simulating their, their meeting of all of these people. And the idea was that, that, that people could talk just as if they were all in the same room and do their, their military planning as if they were all together and rather than being distributed all over the war zone. It was kind of interesting. They had a team in Irkutsk in Russia. At that point, Russia really wasn't any kind of an enemy. This team was doing an awful lot of the work, and I got to manage that team. In fact, I actually uh, went back and forth to Irkutsk in Russia, flying you know, right over the North Pole into Moscow and then over to Irkutsk in central Siberia <laughs> to uh, manage the company. The people there all talked English all spoke English beautifully. They were um, all programming in, in C, so on. Uh, you know, it was all understandable to me. And so, you know, there was a lot of work that was done over actually several years. But in the end, really, um, well, they, they, they delivered a big remote vision system to the uh, U.S. Army. Then there weren't any more orders, and there wasn't anywhere else that wanted to buy that stuff. And it was kind of strictly for the U.S. Army anyway, because uh, there, there was all kinds of non-disclosure agreements around it. <laughs> so there wasn't anything else for Lionheart Technologies to do, and they wound up in, uh, in about the middle of 2002. So that was the end of Lionheart. But typically I was doing more than one thing at a time anyway, so I replaced one with another and kept on moving. And that's what everybody was doing in those days. There, there was not really very much long-term stuff happening at all. It was just a whole lot of boom and bust things going on. You had a nanotechnology company called NanoSig. What, uh, what can you tell me about that? The, I, I joined the company. It was actually already there. Nanotech actually was really interesting to me at this point, and I was kind of thinking... Well, you know, everybody was talking about it, and it was going to be the new huge future, and everybody had to know all about nanotech, or it wasn't going to be, or, or they weren't going to have a job anymore, or something. <laughs> but but what 
nanotech associates did were nanosega and nanotech associates. They were kind of all one thing. They were providing marketing events and, and uh, meeting events and so on that people had to pay to attend. And, and people from all over, you know, nanotech startups and, and all sorts of companies that were dealing in nanotech would provide a speaker at these various meetings. And we'd have a whole room full of people fascinated and desperately interested in learning all about it, uh, who all paid for admission fees. And so we kind of just basically um, collected money that way. <laughs> that, that's kind of what that was about. Uh, nanotech Associates was, yeah, it was kind of like the other thing, but it was more focused on, on attracting companies to Silicon Valley and getting them to to uh, realize that that was the right place to be and the right place to start up. And we would we would hold lots of seminars for those people to get them interested. It was, for me, it was kind of unfamiliar territory, not that it was difficult or anything, but I, I was myself trying to figure out what was my future going to be in nanotech anyway. And I eventually ended up deciding that Nah, really, it it just didn't suit me. There wasn't there wasn't a uh, a thing that really interested me and in, in my existing talents and skills and whatever. So I, I kind of moved on from that. Uh, even at this stage, there wasn't an awful lot of uh, jobs around. You know, I was more interested in jobs at this point, and and there wasn't many jobs around for for hardware developers uh, at that point. So, essentially, what I ended up doing was putting a lot of my efforts into into uh, software. I became a software developer for for a few different companies, one way or another, just as 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 kind of like um, contract jobs. That really eventually got myself um, grown into the. Uh, the general area of being of being employable by um, software companies, you know, big ones. Like the first one that I moved to was the Find, it was called, in um, Silicon Valley. And they employed me to develop, um, they, had, they had a website. What they were about was compiling a, a website with all kinds of online products, mostly clothing, that were being sold by a whole variety of different companies. And they compiled a, compiled a kind of a comparative list of all of these things. And you could, on this website they had, you could look up shirt or something and you'd find all kinds of, oper- uh, you know, the products like that that you could buy from. M- much like it these days, you know, that like, for example, going to eBay or Amazon now. But this was an early effort to do something like what those guys were doing. And anyway, what what I did was develop software for analyzing the visitors, uh, the visitor analytics, and and uh, UI tools for for dynamically managing ad placements and ad servers and A/B tests with different um, uh, website versions, you know. And so it's kind of all all kinds of things around the uh, system side of developing websites. I learned an awful lot in that place which served me well and made me quite employable. Next, by uh, one, one of my colleagues tempted me to, to join Yahoo, which paid me lots more money. The problem with Yahoo was 
was it was a pretty sad environment. There was lots of long faces and empty offices and things like that, you know, and Yahoo was in decline. And, and another colleague tempted me over into, um, into eBay for yet another giant pay increase. <laughs> and so I, I went there. And yeah, so eBay, especially at eBay, they paid me way, way, way more than I'd ever earned any year of my life in my whole career at that point. It was a really incredibly well paid and it was a really strong team. Basically, like most of the companies in Silicon Valley, full of Indians and Chinese and so on, very few young Americans and just a few of us old Americans there, you know. And these people from India and China, were, were they, they grew up to respect older people, much like much unlike, totally unlike everybody else in America, you know. <laughs> so so the, the, the point is is that is that people would hang around and listen to everything that you had to say and 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 you know, you, you'd end up getting lots and lots of uh, respect and, and all kinds of things. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know whether that's really the why it was, but whatever. I ended up making so much money at, at eBay and better than I'd ever made per annum than anywhere else, even including my own company. That, that I now had a stack of money that was just fine for retiring on, and I, I was kind of comfortable at that point. So from eBay, finally, let's say in about, uh, oh, yeah, the year 2012, I, I retired in my own person ever since. Happily in retirement? Yep. Well, um, I guess I'm still busy because I'm developing my own soft trading, uh, stock trading software. Oh, okay. A direct interface to a company called Interactive Brokers, so that it's computer to computer interface to this, to the uh, to the broker. Uh, you know, really low low cost trades and and uh, lots of really wonderful data all the way pouring past my eyes. And I've invented some interesting charts and all kinds of stuff. So I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into that, but that's what I'm doing just to amuse myself. And that's been profitable every year since I've been involved in that too. So that's good. Wow. Okay. Even though I consider myself retired. <laughs> but, you know, one of my big summary of it all is that in all of my career and all the different places I worked and whatever, I never, ever got fired. How about that? <laughs> right. You never got fired. Yeah. I'm retired and never fired. So that, that, that was one of my claims to fame. Anyway, that's the end of my career. That's it. I'm done now. I'm 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 happily retired old gentleman. <laughs> right, okay. It's been a pleasure talking to you, David. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you're welcome, and I've had a good time too. It's brought back lots and lots of old, wonderful old memories. I enjoyed the talk a lot. Our mystery language is, of course, C, a general-purpose computer programming language created in the 1970s by Dennis Ritchie. To this day, it remains popular and has spawned many variants, including C++ and C Sharp. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help, you can become a member, make a donation, or just join our mailing list via acms.org.au. We also have a Patreon page, which you can find via our name. Ciao.